And now, here's Dr. Mike. Hi, friends, and welcome to Soaring Eagle Radio. This episode is going to be uh, quite the eye-opener for someone. Now, those of you who have joined me for episodes over the years likely already know this information, or at least elements of the information that I'm going to share. But we're going to do a deep dive, and and this was uh, inspired, uh, I was motivated to, to do this episode based on a recent article that I read by G. Edward Griffin. Now, many of you are familiar with, uh, with uh, Edward, and uh, you're familiar with him because of the book that he wrote, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. If you don't have this book in your library, I would encourage you to, to get it um, and study it and follow all of the links and research that is provided uh, in this book, uh, the, the Creature from Jekyll Island, G. Edward Griffin. And uh, this article that I, that I read, he, it's a rather lengthy article, so this may be, uh, I may break this up into part one and part two because it's deserving of a of a full treatment, uh, exposition, and and commentary. And along the way, I'm going to point you to some resources that, that I have in my library. I hope that you will also uh, look for those resources and add them to your library so that you can be uh, equipped to speak with people about what's happening today. That's That's something that's been on my heart for a very long time. What is happening in our culture today? I'm, I'm, as I have said many times, those of you who follow um, the ministry that the Lord has entrusted to me, you've heard me make this kind of a statement before, and that statement is this. I am in the autumn of my life, and what I mean by that is I've got a few years, a few miles on the tread, so to speak, that gives me a vantage point that younger people do not have. It gives me perspective. It gives me a, a, a lengthy period of time to review, to evaluate, and to understand the direction that not just the world, but specifically and especially for our concern, is the direction that America has taken. And this is by no accident. It isn't, it isn't evolutionary in nature. And what I mean by that is that it's not random chance. Random chance. It certainly is mutation from truth. But what we see manifesting today in America is certainly not by chance. And this article that I, that I found and... Uh, and started reading, and I thought, well, this is worthy of, uh, of uh, sharing with folks and uh, offering some commentary along the way. And uh, this article, again, is entitled The Chasm, The Chasm. And you can find this, uh, boy, I'll have to find that link and, and, and share that with you, but I would encourage you to download the article and and study it for yourself. Um, 
But what Griffin is, is talking about in this article is how we've arrived at the place where we're at in America today. Now, we have seen some positive things happen lately with the overturning of uh, Roe v. Wade, the recent Supreme Court rulings concerning the Second Amendment and, and gun rights and, and striking down some, some unconstitutional gun restrictions in other states. So those are all good developments. Um, but we've still got a lot of work to do, and we're still, we're still in some serious trouble in America. So I want to uh, share this and offer some comments, and I hope that you will, you will find this, this uh, article, because the, the premise or the thesis of it is that we are fighting a war, uh, uh, a war against collectivism, socialism, communism, but this is not a war with with uh, weapons and aircraft and, and artillery and those kinds of things. This has been a a silent war, following a specific strategy that came out of the London School of Economics, the Frankfurt School, uh, Gramsci and and his uh, his cohorts there, that they would do a silent march through the institutions of America. When their plan was complete, we would be a, a communist nation. Well, we're certainly on that path. We're certainly on the trail to that. And so that is the the background for this article, is uh, fighting the collectivist agenda. And when you understand what we see happening, what comes out of Congress, what comes out of the White House, what comes out of the media, what, what comes out of our education uh, system today, when you understand it within that context, what they're trying to achieve, then you understand that this is about conquering America and making it a, a communist nation, which is a godless nation, which, which is a, a, a worshiping Satan nation, whether that's out in the open or not. But as you well know, that's becoming more out in the open day by day. Satanic temples are are uh, are emerging all over this nation and and claiming religious rights. Uh, among those, uh, abortion, the murder of children, the murder of preborn children, that is all satanic. It's all part of the collectivist agenda. So, to begin this article, uh, Griffin encourages us to consider going back in time with him. We're going to to find out what is going on in our country today by going back in time. And, and he takes us in this article back to 1954 to the offices of the Ford Foundation in New York City. Now, I'm going to share with you an excerpt from what I wrote on that very subject. The foundations that are so prevalent uh, in America today and what they're really being used for. Now, what they were being used for from their, almost from their origin. Now, that yes, they were tax shelters and, and, and methods of hiding money uh, from the government. and uh, But they morphed into much more than that. And so Griffin writes in this article about a conversation that occurred in 1954 in the offices of the Ford Foundation in New York City. 
says there are two men seated at a large mahogany desk, and they're talking. They cannot see or hear us, but we can see them very well. One of the men was Rowan Gaither, and uh, Gaither was the president of the Ford Foundation at that time. And the other gentleman was uh, Norman Dodd. He was the chief investigator of, of what was called the Reese Committee, which was a congressional committee that investigated uh, tax-exempt foundations. Of course, the Ford Foundation was was one of those foundations. So in 1982, fast forward a few years, in 1982, Griffin met with with Dodd in, in his home, um, and he had a, a, a uh, film crew with him at that time uh, filming footage for interviews for a documentary film that, that Griffin made. So Griffin said that he had previously read his testimony, Dodd's testimony, as part of the Reese Committee, Investigation of Tax-Exempt Foundations, and, and he realized how important Dodd's testimony was. Now, I've read that testimony myself, part of the congressional record. It's out there on the Internet for download. You can find it rather easily. Um, and, and some of the things that he had to say are, are absolutely stunning, um, the statements themselves, but, but perhaps even more stunning is that nothing was done about it. It was, it was buried. Um, in fact, the whole uh, red warning and the witch hunt that went on after that, uh, Joe McCarthy, in my opinion, was an American hero, and, uh, and he was painted as some kind of lunatic, and his, his, uh, his public service career uh, ruined by those that wanted to keep this information quiet. So Griffin showed up at Dodd's home. He writes in this article, he says, <clears throat> the reason for Dodd's investigation was that the American public had become alarmed by reports that large tax-exempt foundations were promoting the ideologies of communism and fascism and advocating the elimination of the United States as a sovereign nation. Now, we hear that even today, friends. That's, that's news that's not really news. The UN wants to do that, for example. The World Health Organization wants to do that. And the faux president that we've got right now um, is uh, doing all he can to turn over our, our national sovereignty uh, through treaty to to other global organizations, which is absolutely against the law, violates the Constitution, and and should not be permitted. But we'll see how that plays out. But he says uh, that Dodd's investigation was was to address information that had come to them about the foundations advocating for communism and and uh, and and fascism and the elimination of the United States as a sovereign nation now as far back as the 1930s friends William Randolph Hearst wrote a series of blistering editorials in his national chain of newspapers in which he cited the Carnegie Foundation publications that spouted communist slogans identical to what was coming from the communist party itself Griffin says, when the Carnegie Endowment published an article written by Joseph Stalin attacking capitalism and praising communism, Hearst called it propaganda, pure and simple. And then he wrote this. Hearst wrote, its publication by the Carnegie Foundation, referring to Stalin's article, 
Its publication by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace is an act of thorough disloyalty to America, indistinguishable from the common and familiar circulation of seditious and subversive literature by secret creators. The organ which carries such stuff, even if it has the imprint of the Carnegie Endowment, is not one whit less blameworthy and censorable than the skulking enemy of society whose scene of operation is the dark alley and the hideout. That was what Hearst wrote back in nineteen in the 1930s. Griffin, Griffin writes in another editorial dated March the 11th, 1935, Hearst turned the spotlight on Nicholas Murray Butler. Butler was the president of Columbia University and also the president of Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Hearst quoted a report written by Butler which was a strategy for abolishing the United States as a sovereign country. So back in the 1930s, friends, this kind of ideology had already captured the elitists' minds, not just in government, but in uh, non-government and, and, and para-government and our education system, universities. And some of you will, will know that Columbia University at the time was uh, – was one of the largest universities for educating and and sending teachers into the education system. Well, it would be important to know what uh, Columbia University was teaching them, wouldn't it? Well, this is what their president wrote. In his report to the directors of the fund, which Andrew Carnegie left to promote the Europeanization, the Europeanization of America under the mask of universal peace, Dr. Butler expounds quite frankly this anti-American propaganda that this organization is carrying on. So referring to both Columbia University and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Now, one thing you need to know, friends, what these Luciferian communist progressives, we call them today, what they name things and say, uh, this is what we're doing, this is the purpose. If you think in terms of the absolute opposite, then you're going to be closer to the truth than what they're spouting off. So this movement, to continue on then with what Butler wrote, this movement is what is for what Dr. Butler calls a world state. It is the most seditious proposition ever laid before the American public. Seditious because it gives aid and comfort to the communists, the fascists, the Nazis, absolute enemies of the very rock-bottom principles on which our government is founded. Voices of outrage were also heard in Congress. George Holden Tinkham of Massachusetts, Louis T. McFadden of Pennsylvania, and Martin J. Sweeney of Ohio castigated the tax-exempt foundation as disloyal to America and seditious to the government. Tinkham called for the creation of a committee to investigate tax-supported organizations working for the denationalization of the United States. Congress, however... Even back in the 30s, friends, Congress was inert on that topic. In other words, did nothing. Nothing really happened until after the end of World War II. Now, in spite of strong opposition from within Congress, the Select Committee to Investigate Tax-Exempt Foundations and Comparable Organizations was formed in April 1952 and turned over to Congressman Carol Reese of Tennessee. It was this committee 
that Norman Dodd served as the chief investigator, and it is in that capacity that we now see him at the New York offices of the Ford Foundation. So, so Griffin is taking us there now, and he's, here's this conversation, and this is on record. Mr. Dodd's uh, uh, personal memoirs, records of his investigation, conversations that took place, and, and some of this made it into the actual Dodd report to the Reese Committee. So Mr. Gaither, who was the president at that time of the Ford Foundation, again in 1954, asked Mr. Dodd, would you be interested in knowing what we do here at the Ford Foundation? And Mr. Dodd says, well, yes, that's exactly why I'm here. I'd be very interested, sir. Then without any prodding at all, Gaither says, Mr. Dodd, we operate in response to directives, the substance of which is that we shall use our grant-making power to alter life in the United States so that it can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. Shall I read that again? No, I think you got it. The president of the Ford Foundation, a charitable, philanthropic trust, was spending its money funding projects and efforts to alter the life in the United States so that it can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. Dot almost fell off his chair when he hears that, and then he says to Gaither, well, sir, you can do anything you please with your grant-making powers, but don't you think you have an obligation to make a disclosure to the American people? You enjoy tax exemption, which means you are indirectly subsidized by taxpayers. So why don't you tell the Congress and the American people what you just told me? And Gaither replies, well, we would never do of dream of doing such a thing. (laughs) How about that? The question that arises in Mr. Dodd's mind is how would it be possible for anyone to think they could alter life in the United States so that it could be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union and by implication with other nations of the world? What an absurd thought that would be, especially in 1954. That would require the abandonment of American concepts of justice, traditions of liberty, national sovereignty, cultural identity, constitutional protections, and political independence, to name just a few. Yet, these men were deadly serious about it. They were not focused on the question of if this could be done. Their only question was how to do it. What would it take to change American attitudes? What would it take to convince them to abandon their heritage in exchange for global union? And the answer was provided by the Carnegie Endowment Fund for International Peace, the same group that had been the center of controversy in the 1930s. When Dodd visited that organization and began asking about their activities, the president said, well, Mr. Dodd, you have a lot of questions. It would be very tedious and time-consuming for us to answer them all, so I have a counterproposal. Why don't you send a number of your staff to our facilities and we'll open our, our minute books so the transcript of their of their meetings. Why don't you send a member of your staff to our facilities and we'll open our minute books from the very first meeting of the Carnegie Fund and your staff can go through them and copy whatever you find there. Then you'll know everything we're doing. Now, can you imagine that? And Dodd was amazed, certainly. He observed that the president of the Carnegie Endowment Fund for International Peace was newly appointed and probably had never actually read the minutes himself, so Dodd accepted the offer, sent a member of his staff to the Carnegie Endowment Facilities. Her name was Catherine Casey, by the way. 
and she was hostile to the activity of the congressional committee to to find out what was going on with these tax uh, exempt foundations. Political opponents of the committee had placed her on the staff to be a watchdog and a damper on the operation. And we know that happens all the time, all the time. You can think of the Warren Commission, uh, Commission, Warren Commission, investigating JFK's assassination, who they placed on that committee to make sure the information never saw the light of day, especially the truth never saw, saw the light of day. So Ms. Casey, whose attitude was what could possibly be wrong with tax-exempt foundations, they do so much good, she went to the boardroom, she took her dictaphone machine. <laughs> There's a blast from the past. They used uh, mechanically inscribed belts in those days, and Casey recorded word for word many of the key passages from the minutes of this organization, starting with the very first meeting. What she found was so shocking, Mr. Dodd said she almost lost her mind. She became ineffective in her work after that and had to be given another assignment. Now, how about that? Somebody who was put in that position to make sure that the truth did not come out, and yet the truth was so egregious that she could not function anymore in that capacity and had to be replaced. This is what those minutes revealed. From the very beginning, the members of the board of the Carnegie Endowment Fund discussed how to alter life in the United States. So that does that sound familiar to the Ford Foundation? Well, it should because they were all in cahoots. Now, I'm going to read an excerpt uh, in just a, just a minute from my chapter in the book Social Injustice, Exposing the False Gospel of the Social Justice Movement because I did some research on the tax-exempt foundations. So from the very beginning, it says in this article that Griffin wrote called The Chasm, the members of the board discussed how to alter life in the United States, how to change the attitudes of Americans to give up their traditional principles and concepts of government and be more receptive to what they call the collectivist model of society. Now, Griffin is going to talk more about this uh, later in the article, and, um, and of course I'll be, I'll be sharing that uh, uh, with you. But at the Carnegie Foundation board meetings, they discussed this question in a scholarly fashion. After months of deliberation, they came to the conclusion that out of all the options available for altering political and social attitudes, there was only one that was historically dependable. That option was war. That's right. War. In times of war, they reasoned, only then would people be willing to give up things they cherish in return for the desperate need and desire for security against a deadly enemy. You know, that's a formula that's, that's been applied and used successfully for centuries. Create a conflict that threatens the well-being, the prosperity, and the safety of a people, and they will, they will give you, agree to give you all sorts of authority and power over them if you will promise them safety. That's exactly what has happened in America. And so the committee decided that war was the only option because then people would be willing to give up things they cherish in return for the desperate need and desire for security against a deadly enemy. And so the Carnegie Endowment Fund for International Peace declared in its minutes that it must do whatever it can to bring the United States into war. 
let that sink in. The Carnegie Endowment Fund for International Peace was agitating, advocating for war. They also said that there were other actions needed, and these were their exact words. Here's a quote from the minutes of the Carnegie Foundation, the Endowment Fund for International Peace. This is what they said, quote, We must control education in the United States. End quote. They realized that that was a pretty big order, so they teamed up with the Rockefeller Foundation and the Guggenheim Foundation to pool their financial resources to control education in America, and particularly to control the teaching of history. They assigned those areas of responsibility that involved issues relating to domestic affairs to the Rockefeller Foundation. Those issues relating to international affairs were taken on as the responsibility of the Carnegie Endowment. Their first goal was to rewrite the history books, and they discussed at great length how to do that. They approached some of the more prominent historians of the time and presented to them the proposal that they rewrite history to favor the concept of collectivism. But they were turned down flat. Then they decided, and and again, these are their own words, quote, we must create our own stable of historians, end quote. They selected 20 candidates at the university level who were seeking doctorates in American history. Then they went to the Guggenheim Foundation and said, would you grant fellowships to candidates selected by us who are of the right frame of mind, those who see the value of collectivism as we do, Would you help them to obtain their doctorates so that we can then propel them into positions of prominence and leadership in the academic world? And guess what? The Guggenheim Foundation agreed to that. So they gathered a list of young men who were seeking their doctorate degrees. They interviewed them, analyzed their attitudes, chose the 20 they thought were best for their purpose. They sent them to London for a briefing and... London is significant, and we'll get to that in a moment. But at this briefing in London, they were told what would be expected if and when they win the doctorates they were seeking. They were told that they would have to view history, write history, teach history from the perspective that collectivism was a positive force in the world and was the wave of the future. In other words, in the guise of analyzing history, they would create history by conditioning future generations to accept collectivism as desirable and inevitable. Now, friends, this should outrage you. This should outrage you. Think of how far they have advanced this ideology right under our noses in the so-called public school systems of America. They're actually government school systems. They're indoctrination camps. They are propaganda and brainwashing organizations of our youth. Is it any wonder that young children coming out of our school systems cannot think for themselves? They have to be told what to think. And they're triggered. This is Mind Control 101, friends. They are triggered by sound bites and and uh, values and morals that have been instilled in them that are godless. Case in point, 
Roe v. Wade being overturned and sent back to the states to decide. All of the mindless zombies that are graduates of the public education system are all screaming, hollering, hyperventilating, having nervous breakdown, meltdowns, because abortions are no longer available. That is not what the Supreme Court ruled. They overturned Wade and sent it back to the states. Now, thankfully, many states already at last count that I'm aware of, 10 or 11 states now, have enacted laws in their states prohibiting abortion. But I'll guarantee you that the liberal states, such as California, Oregon, Washington, New York, and others are going to make sure that abortion is still available. But we have masses of people in near meltdown mode because the the right to kill, to murder unborn human beings has been sent back to the individual states to decide. And each state can decide for themselves. They have a meltdown. Well, here's the reason why. Because as long as the federal government had the, the control of that, then they tried to force it on the rest of us. Even though, even though, friends, you know this, the Supreme Court does not make law. Roe v. Wade was not the law of the land. Any governor at any time in any state had the authority and the power to say, we're not observing that in this state. You can rule that way if you want to, Roe v. Wade, but we're not permitting that in our state. And then his political career will stand or fall based on the will of the people. That's the kind of mindless nonsense we've got going on, and that's just one current example. I want to share with you um, an excerpt from the book that I mentioned, Social Injustice. My chapter in this book was Progressive Politics in the Church. Progressive Politics in the Church. How it came about, the history of it. But in that, I wrote a section in that chapter that was titled Foundations, Creating a Progressive Religious Structure Through Managed Transformation. Now, I've been talking about in this chapter, I've been talking about uh, President Woodrow Wilson and his many, many, many errors. I call them short-sighted missteps in the book, allowing them, among other things, allowing uh, the creation of the Federal Reserve System. But this this ecumenical spirit of the age that that captured the early 1900s and then moving forward was expressed most tangibly in the creation of several global religious and peace organizations and conferences such as the American Society of International Law, that was in 1906, the National Arbitration and Peace Conference, 1907, the Methodist Federation for Social Action, 1907, the Federal Council of Churches of Christ in America, 1908, American Society for the Judicial Settlement of International Disputes, 1910. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. Many of those organizations were merely the 
outworkings of private foundations and their wealth, most especially the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and the Ford Foundation. Author Carl Teichrib describes the function of the many American foundations that sprang up in the early 20th century. Carl wrote this, quote, Change agents of yesterday and then the present understand that if culture is to shift in a permanent way, then social values must move gradually until a tipping point is reached. For this to occur, institutional hubs must first be altered within government, the education system, media and popular culture, religious organizations, and other key societal crossroads need to embrace the new worldview. So this is what Griffin is writing about when the foundations got together and said, let's create historians uh, on our own dime and let's tell them up front, we expect you to write history, rewrite history, actually, from a collectivist viewpoint, that collectivism is the future. This is why we're seeing what we are seeing manifest today. So, continuing with what Tykrib writes, the top-down change agents reforming our social and political institutions are not difficult to discover. Indeed, for the past hundred years in the Western world, and the United States in particular, an army of social and policy engineers have been accepted as part of the structural landscape. Enter the expert pressure peddlers, the interlocking complex of philanthropic foundations, think tanks, executive organizations, and high academia. This is exactly what was going on since the days of Andrew Carnegie, Nicholas Murray Butler, Teddy Roosevelt, and Woodrow Wilson. Indeed, it's an outgrowth of America's progressive era. Before 1900, friends, there were there were only 18 philanthropic foundations operating in the United States. However, between 1910 and 1919, 58 new foundations were created. During the 1920s, the total number grew to 173. And during the 1930s, tax-exempt foundations grew to 288. The 1940s and the 1950s saw the greatest growth of these foundations. The total became 2,839. Oh. Why did I cite that? Why, why is that important to understand? Well, it's important to understand because from the beginning of the creation of these foundations, they've had two objectives. As Griffin's already pointed out, here's what I wrote. The first objective was to shelter the wealth of their creators, and the second was to use that wealth to fundamentally change America into one nation among many under the control of a global governing body. These statements might sound outlandish to some readers, but let me assure you they are not. David Patterson, in his article titled An Interpretation of the American Peace Movement, 1898-1914, summarizes the mindset of the wealthy philanthropists by stating, quote, The world federationists were more closely internationalists. These internationalists shared peaceful aspirations of the pacifist-minded and generalists but were unwilling to wait for the conversion of the masses to the goal of world peace or of the nation's widespread acceptance of arbitration and conciliation procedures for the resolution of international disputes. They wanted the major world powers to establish permanent international institutions 
which would formalize and regularize the conciliation process. They talked most often of the creation of some kind of world federation. Their proposals ranged from Andrew Carnegie's general program for a League of Peace composed of the leaders of the major powers of Europe and the United States who would agree to use economic sanctions and, as a last resort, an international police force against the aggressor states, to more specific arrangements for the creation of an international legislature which would develop procedures for preserving the peace. By the early 1950s, the amount of money the largest foundations had poured into anti-American activities such as socialism, progressive organizations, racial agitation groups, and activist groups was in the billions of dollars and finally drew the attention of citizens and politicians alike. The late Jim Mars, in his book Rule by Secrecy, writes about a statement that Norman Dodd, director of research for the House Select Committee to Investigate Foundations and Charitable Organizations, made in 1952. Dodd asserted that the then-president of the Ford Foundation told him, operating under a directive from the White House, his foundation was to use our grant-making power so as to alter our life in the United States that we can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. So see, this is the same thing that Griffin found in his research that I found in mine dealing with foundations. I continue. The House Select Committee mentioned above was also called the Reese Committee on Foundations. Norman Dodd's report was a bombshell of revealing information that should have resulted in the Department of Justice and the FBI launching full-scale investigations into the illegal activities of many of the largest foundations. The Dodd report conclusion is that, quote, it seems incredible that the trustees of typically American fortune-created foundations should have permitted them to be used to finance ideas and practices incompatible with the fundamental concepts of our Constitution. Yet there seems evidence that this may have occurred. End quote. Well, I'll tell you, it did, not may, it did occur. Dodd tempered his words in this report, however, The findings leave readers no other understanding than that the foundations deliberately undermine the Constitution of the United States by supporting organizations and strategies aimed at its demise. The questions the investigation team sought to answer included how foundations use their resources for purposes contrary to those for which they were established. We can say that the answer to that is absolutely. Second question, have they used their resources for purposes which can be classified as un-American? Again, absolutely yes. Third question, have they used their resources for purposes which can be regarded as subversive? Yes. Have they resorted to propaganda in order to achieve the, the objectives for which they have also been made? Yes. Yes and yes. That's the short answer an unequivocal yes to all of those questions. Consider that the American Historical Association issued a report in 1934 which concluded that the day of the individual in the United States has come to an end and that the future would be characterized inevitably by some form of collectivism and an increase in the authority of the state. In February 1936, the John Dewey Society was created. It worked very closely with the American Historical Society the Progressive Education Association, the League for Industrial Democracy, originally named the Intercollegiate Socialist Society, which is Fabian Socialism, and the National Education Association to develop and disseminate this 
following mission statement. An educational curriculum designed to indoctrinate the American student from matriculation to the consummation of his education. It contrasts sharply, contrasts sharply with the freedom of the individual as the cornerstone of our social structure. For this freedom, it seems to substitute the group, the will of the majority, and a centralized power to enforce this will, presumably in the interest of all. Its development and production seems to have been largely the work of those organizations engaged in research, such as the Social Science Research Council and the National Research Council. Its promotion appears to have been managed by such organizations as the Progressive Education Association, the American Historical Association, the League for Industrial Democracy, the John Dewey Society, and the Anti-Defamation League. Supplementing their efforts were others, such as the Parent Teachers Association, the National Council of Churches, and the Committee for Economic Development, each of which has played some part in adjusting the minds of American citizens to the idea of planning and to the marked changes which have taken place in the public interest. End quote. Now, the Dodd report that, that we've been talking about here in uh, my book and in, in Griffin's article examined the foundation activities from 1903 to 1953 and their relationships with one another in the executive branch of the United States federal government. Here, the evil underbelly of political and religious progressivism is, is exposed to the glaring light of truth. Dodd revealed that grants made by foundations, already mentioned above, were for the purposes of, one, directing education in the United States toward an international viewpoint and discarding the traditions to which it formerly had been dedicated. Two, training individuals and servicing agencies to render advice to the executive branch of the federal government. Three, decreasing the dependency of education upon the resources of the local community and freeing it from many of the natural safeguards inherent in this American tradition. (coughs) Excuse me. Three, changing both school and college curricula to the point where they sometimes denied the principles underlying the American way of life. Not sometimes, friends. All the time now. And fourth, or fifth, I guess, fifth, financing experiments designed to determine the most effective means by which education can be pressed into service of a political nature. Barrett Kios. Now, if you're not familiar with um, Barrett's site, then... uh, I would encourage you to uh, to become familiar. Uh, here's an article, Conforming the Church to the New World Order. This is what Barrett writes. In 1942, six years before the World Council of Churches was formally launched, its organizers within the Federal Council of Churches held a national study conference at Wesleyan University in Ohio. Among the 30 delegates were 15 bishops, seven seminary presidents, and eight college and university presidents. John Foster Dulles, who later became Secretary of State in the Eisenhower administration, chaired the conference. As head of the Federal Council's Interchurch Commission to study the bases of a just and durable peace, Dulles submitted the conference report. It recommended the following things. A world government of delegated powers, immediate limitations on national sovereignty, international control of all armies and navies, a universal system of money, Worldwide freedom of immigration, a democratically controlled international bank, that's the Federal Reserve, friends, even distribution of the world's natural wealth. Now, I ask you from that list that I just read, which ones have not manifested today? 
which ones have not been talked about, advocated for, or or in reality implemented? Because all of these things have been talked about, have been have been advocated for and trying to be pushed on every nation of the world. It's just an amazing thing to watch all of this happening right before our eyes. This drive for for a new world order that embraces collectivism as Griffin called it, socialism is a is is the name most people will use. They're pushing this under the guise of of the brotherhood of man, and it's being forced upon the world. And listen, the church is not innocent in this. The church has been used as a vehicle to bring this about. And it's just absolutely astounding to me to see this. Now, before I go on, I want to share with you some resources for your library. I I encourage you to, to get these books. You can find them used um, and do some study and research on your own. Uh, Carol Quigley, Carol Quigley, the name of the book is Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time. Carol Quigley, uh, intimately familiar with the elitists, the globalists, and guess who, the Clintons. Here's a book by M. Stanton Evans. Get it in your library, M. Stanton Evans, Blacklisted by History, Blacklisted by History, the untold story of Senator Joe McCarthy and his fight against America's enemies. They ruined his life when he blew the whistle on the communists in our midst. Diana West, the book American Betrayal, The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character. Again, Diana West. American Betrayal, The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character. If you're not familiar with Anthony Sutton, the late Anthony Sutton, then I would encourage you to become familiar with his writings. Here's one of his that I have in my library, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, the remarkable true story of the American capitalists who financed the Russian communists. Anthony Sutton, S-U-T-T-O-N. Now, many of you already know that the American capitalists financed um, Hitler and the Nazi war machine. Why would it be a shock that they financed the Bolsheviks? Here's a more recent book by uh, Brandon House, H-O-W-S-E, Brandon House, Marxianity, Marxianity, how the evangelical deep state and their useful idiots are merging Marxism and Christianity through social justice, white privilege, cultural Marxism, illegal immigration, interfaith dialogue, and more. Brennan House, Marxianity. Here's a book that was co-written by, by Sutton, Anthony Sutton. He co-wrote it with uh, Patrick Wood. Many of you know Patrick Wood for Citizens for Free Speech, Technocracy News, Pat is a is a friend has been on the the show many times. You can search the archives, uh, Soaring Eagle Radio, for for those episodes. Uh, the name of the book is Trilaterals Over Washington. Trilaterals Over Washington, and of course uh, they are taking on the Trilateral Commission that dovetails very very nicely in with the Council on Foreign Relations and other globalist organizations, <clears throat> the Bilderberg Group, and so on and so forth. 
Um, I also have in my library, I recommend for your reading Sutton's book, Wall Street and FDR, the true story of how Franklin D. Roosevelt colluded with corporate America. Um, This idea of corporate fascism that we're seeing today, all of these corporations marching in lockstep with with whatever the the, um, depravity of the moment happens to be – that all started a long, long, long time ago. It's just now being manifested. It's it's on steroids today. But Sutton's book, Wall Street and FDR, the true story of how Franklin Roosevelt colluded with corporate America. Friends, uh, I appreciate you uh, joining me today uh, for this episode. Um, I'm going to share just a couple of more minutes and uh, – and uh, I want to encourage you to share this this part one um, with your friends and on your platforms. I, I do appreciate your prayers and uh, your support. Um, as you know, Kathy and I both retired recently from our from our jobs, and uh, and we are loving uh, retirement. But retiring or retirement is not from the ministry at all. We're pouring into the ministry. So we appreciate your kind support, your generous support, your prayers, your friendship. Shoot me an email once in a while and let me know you're listening and, and you appreciate the show. Um, drmichaelspalding at gmail.com. drmichaelspalding at gmail.com. Now, I mentioned uh, in this episode a couple of times already uh, how the education system has been has been compromised, conquered, and is now part of the tool of the globalists, the collectivists, the communists, the Satanists, the progressives in our midst. It is being used to brainwash and create an army of uh, illiterate, unthinking zombies that can be triggered at a moment's notice by a headline. Look at what's going on in our nation today. It's, well, it's tragic, but it's not hopeless. It is not hopeless. I haven't given up hope. I hope that you have not given up hope. We have work to do, friends. That's, that's the reality of it. We've got to push back. One of the things dealing, speaking of in the context of education I encourage you to do is get your children out of the government schools. Get your children out of the school systems. Homeschool them. Come together with other parents and figure out a schedule for homeschooling. I I I know that that's difficult for some folks. And listen, our uh, our wicked leaders in America for decades and decades have made homeschooling difficult because they don't want you to do it. That's part of the objective of eroding the value of our money so that most households are two-income households out of necessity. Figure out a way that you can get your kids out. Maybe talk to your, your, your parents if they're retired. I've already volunteered to homeschool all my grandchildren. Give them a real education, real education. So just briefly, I've only got a couple of minutes left and, uh, Well, you know what? Maybe I'll just save it for next time because I don't want to hurry through this. 
I'll save it for next time. I'm going to pick it up, though, next time on part two. There may be even a part three of this, but the birth of progressive education, the birth of progressive education. In America, we think that it started with Dewey, and in a sense, it did. In a sense, it did start with Dewey. Dewey went to the Soviet Union and saw how they were doing things there and then brought back what he called the Soviet model of education which was not to to uh, educate boys and girls to make them highly functioning individuals with uh, freedom and um, and a capacity to make good moral choices no the soviet model is to produce citizens good obedient citizens unthinking but obedient. Don't challenge, just obey. That's what we see in our school systems today, friend. So we're going we're gonna to talk about the birth, and, and, and believe it or not, it was articulated in the late 1700s by a uh, psychologist, a, a German psychologist, no, not Freud, Johann Gottlieb Fichte. Johann Gottlieb Fichte. Uh, I'll just leave this as a teaser. He said this, Education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils are thus schooled, they will be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than their schoolmasters would have wished. (laughs) Now, there's more to that quote than that, but that's enough of a teaser. That's the direction we're going to be going next when we continue this study here on Soaring Eagle Radio. God bless you guys. Thank you for joining me today. Drop me a note. Thank you for your support. We love you guys. See you next time. Thank you for joining me today for this episode. Soaring Eagle Radio is a broadcast ministry of the Transforming Word Ministries. You may send correspondence or support donations to Dr. Mike Spaulding, P.O. Box 3007, Elida, E-L-I-D-A, Ohio, 45807. Again, Dr. Mike Spaulding, P.O. Box 3007, Elida, E-L-I-D-A, Ohio, 45807. You may also email me at the following email address, drmichaelspaulding at gmail.com. Again, drmichaelspaulding at gmail.com. Until next time, friends, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be multiplied to you.